chapter 39, verses 20 through 23, it says, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, verse 21, the Lord was with him. It's like a refrain that just shows up again and again and again in Joseph's life. The Lord was with him. That is the gift. That is the gift, right? The Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Sound familiar? It's the same pattern we see playing out in Potiphar's house, right? Plays out again in the prison. Why? I think it's got to be because of how Joseph responded. That he had a choice in that moment when he was thrown in prison. He did. You and I have a choice if we were to face similar circumstances. We could either choose, like Joseph did, the way of integrity, the way of serving others in order to be a blessing to them, or the choice that I've made more often to become bitter and harden and resentful and seek out ways to avenge myself. Maybe it's just me, because no one else is agreeing, (laughs) right? Why is it? He had a choice. He could become bitter or he could meet God in that place. And in that place of imprisonment, make that place a place of springs, a place of flourishing, a place where the character and likeness of Christ was coming alive inside of him. It sounds a lot like what the psalmist writes about in Psalm 84. And it poses the question really for each of us, you know, when we face moments like that, are we, are we the kind of people who are going to sulk or serve? When life gets hard and we feel ourselves thrown in prison, falsely accused, misrepresented, are we going to sulk or are we going to serve? Now, that sounds a little bit crass. I think there's moments when, when you know, genuinely, I don't want to like minimize genuine pain and the need to grieve that and lament that. I'm not overlooking that. I don't want to minimize that. There's, there's time and space and process to that, but it's so that we might then journey through and become a blessing to others, become more open and available for God to work in and through us to be a blessing to others, to bring healing to others, right? And I think Joseph is faced with the process, you know, these, these two choices. He's been hurt by his brothers, sold into slavery. There's more hurt now with these trumped up accusations from a powerful woman, you know, and he's thrown into jail and his world's come crashing down before his eyes all over again. And yet he chooses to cooperate with the work of God in those moments rather than resisting it. You see it? He cooperates. He submits to God. And we see time and time again, God uses those painful places in his life to shape Joseph's character. And it's beautiful, I think, to note that later on in the story, Joseph names one of his children Ephraim, which literally means, Ephraim, he means God made me fruitful in the land of my suffering names one of his child, children as a monument, as a, as a memorial to the goodness of God in those difficult places. Psalm 84 is kind of the, 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 the keystone that gives, gives life to this in verse 5. It says, blessed are those whose strength it is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. And here's the, here's the verse in verse 6, as they pass through the valley of Bacar, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. 
And I think sometimes when we, when we read that and we see, you know, going from strength to strength, you know, we, we think mountaintop to mountaintop, from high point to high point, but that's not how strength is developed. At least that's what they tell me in the gym. They say, no, no, strength is developed when you take on the weights and you put some resistance uh, into it, right? I mean, that's where strength is actually developed. And so I think for us, we see this is the same kind of thing. If we want our strength to be developed, if we want to go from strength to strength, as we, if we want to be the kind of people who pass through the valley of Bacchus, and make it a place of springs. Man, that's like a vision for my life. That's a vision that you should, you should hang that before your own life. You know, if you want to be a follower of Jesus, this is the kind of person that he invites you to become. One who no matter what, what, what situation you find yourself in and the journey you're experiencing, that you can journey through that in such a way that you make it a place of springs, a place of flourishing, a place of healing and life, not just for yourself but for others. Imagine that. And maybe you've experienced people like that, that you've spent some time with, where you see, man, the way they live their lives, they make it a valley of Bacar. But here's the thing. I think God's doing this work inside of Joseph, little by little, because we have to remember, as we read the story of Joseph, we have to remember that he doesn't know the outcome when he's here in the prison, when he's been falsely accused and thrown into prison for stuff that he didn't do, that he didn't deserve, when he's facing these consequences. He didn't know where it was all going to end up. We do because we've been reading his story every day for the last week, haven't we, church? (laughs) See what I did there? Yeah. We've been reading it all week and we're going to keep reading it this week, aren't we, church? Amen. There we go. So, so, we, we have the benefit of hindsight looking back into Joseph's life, and we can, we can easily be like, oh, just hold, hang in there, Joseph. Hang in there a little bit longer. Things are going to get better. It's going to work out all right. You know, just stay there. You know, stay the course. Don't give up. You know, that kind of a... But he doesn't know that. All he knows is what he's facing in front of him and where, what, what it is that's brought him to that point. That's all he has to draw on. And in those moments, he is choosing to stay open to say, God, what is it you have for me? How can I make this place a place of blessing? And he responds with openness to God and receptivity to God and obedience to God, faithfulness to God, rather than hardness and bitterness and um, rejecting. And I wonder, friends, if maybe that's what God wants to say to some of you this morning. You find yourselves in a really difficult place, a really hard place, And God just wants to say, hey, look, you don't have the benefit of being able to read to the end of your story. All you have, like Joseph, is where you're at and the things that have brought you to that point. And I just wonder if the Spirit of God, maybe just for a moment, wants to breathe into you and say, hang in there. Hang in there. Don't give up. Stay the course. Choose faithfulness to God. Choose godliness. He sees all. He knows all. He is with you. It's not over. He wants to transform your life and your surrounding into a place of springs that will be a blessing not only to you, but to others. And I believe maybe for someone that's, that's why you're here this morning is just to, just to hear that. God's saying, stay there. Continue to grow in humility. Learn what it is to live a life of love and serving and blessing others through that. And I wonder if, you know, what's happening here unbeknownst to Joseph is that 
during these times of serving others and, you know, he's serving the Potiphar and he's serving the prison warden and in all of this, he's learning, some, he's learning some valuable skills and competencies. It's not just all about character, but he's learning some competencies that'll serve him later in time when it's time to lead the whole nation of Israel, skills and lessons that, you know, I think, honestly, would be incredibly difficult to learn any other way especially if you still got the kind of prideful, arrogant, brash Joseph from his younger years, right? Um, I, I think oftentimes this is how God works. This is just how God works. As I, as I survey the scriptures, as I look across human history, as I look through my own life, oftentimes God places us in times of hardship, prison, you know, whatever it might be, we, we're thrown into the pit where it feels really difficult circumstances like the Valley of Bacar, because that, he wants to teach us things and he wants to mold and shape things inside of us that he can't do any other way. He can't produce those things if we're on the mountaintop every single day of the, week, of the year. He wants to take us deeper, friends. And in order to do that, he takes us into these difficult places. And so we see God doing this deeper work in his heart and God's working in Joseph so that the dreams he had from God would someday come to pass. But they're not going to come to pass in Joseph's way or in the way that he expected they might. You know? They're going to come about in God's way, in God's, uh, in, in God's plan. And, and so God's teaching him that thing that, that, that was key to outworking the dreams that he had, had given to him. He had to release them to him and could only be learned in a posture of humility and servanthood. It's the only way these lessons could be learned. And so in prison, Joseph meets a couple other people who turn out to be fairly influential dudes, the uh, Pharaoh's cupbearer and the chief baker. And it turns out they, they both have dreams while they're in prison. They have dreams and Joseph plays this role in interpreting their dreams. And so uh, interpretation was something that Joseph had already kind of practiced a wee bit. If you remember back into chapter 37, he, he offered an interpretation of dreams that God had given to him. He said, hey, brothers, older brothers, you're all going to bow down to me one day. Hey, and mum and dad, that includes you too, by the way. You know, you'll, you'll be, one day, you'll be, you know, like, he'd, he'd often been kind of practiced in, in interpretation. But we see in Joseph's response to the cupbearer and the, and the chief baker, actually, something is definitely shifting in Joseph's life because he doesn't come across with the same kind of prideful, arrogant, brash offering of his own interpretation to these things. We see a different response. He shows up and he, and he tells them, he says, the cup baker and the chief baker have had these dreams, but they, they're unable to interpret them. They're unable to make sense of them. And it makes them feel sad. So they're feeling sad. Joseph notices them feeling sad. And he says, why are you feeling sad? And then it says in verse, chapter 40, verse 8, it says, we both had dreams, they answered, but there's no one to interpret them. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? That's a very different response than what we saw in chapter 37, isn't it? You know, he could have easily, if his story had have played out and he continued on the trajectory of chapter 37, he could have easily been like, hey, I got this, I got this, I'm good with dreams, you tell me your dreams, I'll, so, I'll, I'll let you know what they mean, right? That would have been Joseph in chapter 37. Joseph in chapter 40 says, don't interpretations belong to God? And so they proceed, they tell jo their, their dreams to Joseph and God graces Joseph with the interpretation of those dreams. God gives Joseph the interpretation, which turn out to be incredibly accurate. Not always pleasant, but incredibly accurate. And the next thing that's recorded in the story is the fulfillment of those dreams, exactly as Joseph had interpreted. The baker is killed. The cupbearer 
is restored to his position in the, in the kingdom, alongside Pharaoh's hand and giving his cup back to... And again, through this, God is bringing about even deeper work of humility in Joseph's life. It's becoming less and less about him. See, when we interpret, when we serve another person's dream, that's often where we find our own dreams starting to become fulfilled. You ever notice that? When we serve another's dreams, we see actually God's doing this work through the humility and the serving of another. He's, he's bringing our dreams to pass, often in ways that we didn't expect, but are actually more true and more right. And so he implores the cupbearer as the cupbearer is kind of taken off out of prison to go back to the, to the, to the throne room and serve Pharaoh. He, Joseph kind of says, hey, hey, when you get there, when you get there, don't forget me. Don't remember me when you get back to into pres, uh, Pharaoh's presence. And then there's this tragic line at the very end of chap, Genesis chapter 40, this tragic line that reads, the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. He forgot him. Four syllables, three words. Oh, that's what I wrote in my Bible, literally. U-G-H, exclamation point. That's what's written next to that line in my Bible. Can you imagine how that would have felt like for Joseph to just go, oh, are you kidding me? God, I thought I'd learned humility. I acknowledged you as the interpreter of dreams. You showed up and said that, you know, proved it right. Like, come on, God, I'm serving not only you, but I'm serving these people you've placed in, in front of me. I'm doing, you know, like, and yet, nope. Ugh. Man, he forgot him. More pain, more hurt, a deeper pit for Joseph, right? Imagine what it must have felt like. And then if we read on into the very beginning of chapter 41, verse 1, it says, when two full years had passed, forgot him for another two years, left rotting in jail. Ugh, right? You can imagine it. I mean, two more years. In fact, the journey for Joseph from the first pit he was thrown in by his brothers until this point when Pharaoh has dreams and calls for Joseph is a period of 13 years. 13 years in the waiting. 13 years of learning humility. 13 years of being disappointed and humbled again and again and again. 13 years of that honing and molding and shaping of character by a God who can only do those things in hard places. Well, he, he, he can do them in other places, right? I mean, he's God. He can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. But often chooses to use those. You get what I'm saying, right? You, you understand what I'm saying. And I mean, 13 years of God using these painful, difficult experiences to transform him for God's glory and for God's purpose and for God's will. And then Pharaoh has this dream that his magicians and all his wise people, they can't figure out. And the cupbearer is triggered in that moment to go, oh, there's this dude I remember back in prison, Joseph. He told us our dreams and he was spot on. In fact, you know, we should go call Joseph. And so Joseph's brought before Pharaoh and we see a deeper expression of humility, a deeper expression of the presence and power of God in someone's life when he responds to Pharaoh saying, hey, I've had these dreams, can you interpret them for me? And Joseph responds saying, I cannot do it. 
Joseph replies to Pharaoh, but God, I cannot do it, but God, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. I cannot interpret, but God will give the answer. He's now deflecting all attention away from himself. You see, he's moved from the question response to the cupbearer and the chief baker a couple of chapters earlier of saying, isn't God the one who interprets dreams? Now he's saying, I can't do this. Only God can do it. Let's ask God, you know. And the dreams reveal that there's going to be this period of seven years of incredible abundance and provision that'll be followed up by seven years of incredible famine and hardship. And, and Joseph, with a mixture of skills is, that he's learnt in prison and serving Potiphar, comes up with a plan and offers it to, to, to Pharaoh. Um, and then Pharaoh, this pagan, ruler of the empire, place of power, total pagan, recognizes the work of God in and through a lowly prisoner. Look at it. In verse 38, it says, can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the Spirit of God, and I quote, from Pharaoh. That was his words. Can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the Spirit of God. Man, wouldn't you love that to be said of your life and of mine? Can we find anyone like us? One in whom is the Spirit of God. And then in verse 42, just a couple of verses later, a cloak is placed around Joseph's shoulders. This is the third time in Joseph's story that he's had a coat, a cloak placed on him, and it shows up in the story. But this time, it's placed on a new person, I think, a different man. You know, he's been so transformed and shaped and made like Christ. All the things that he's learned. But more importantly, the way that he has allowed God to change him means that he's ready to begin to step into the fullness of what God has for him. And this whole approach in, in and through it all is really all about helping others, to save others. Joseph is the second in command in, across all of Egypt is where he ends up, right? This place of power and prestige and status and, and incredible wealth at his fingertips. But how did he get there? This is one of those like rags to riches stories, right? This is one of those stories that Hollywood loves to make movies out of and we all love to pay money to go watch because it's a story who comes from nothing, one who comes from nothing and ends up with absolutely everything. But the journey wasn't one of just continual up and to the right, was it? No, we saw 13 years of a little bit up and then massive disappointment, a little bit up and then even deeper disappointment, a little bit up, you know, like... Even as he was learning, even as he was growing, we're seeing the progression of character in his life in and through that season of 13 years, didn't we? And yet God still showed up because it takes two pits in Joseph's life, a well and then a prison cell. It takes serving under two different masters, Potiphar and the jail warden and all of these things before eventually there is a blessing and an anointing and a calling on Joseph through all of that. And it was and it was, it was others that were blessed as a result of it. Potiphar's household was blessed, and the, the jail warden was blessed, and, 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 and the cupbearer in particular you know, was blessed through this, right? All of this was going on, echoing the promise that God made to Abraham and for all of God's people way back in Genesis chapter 12 when he says, I'm going to bless you, not so that you can have the badge of honor and say, hey, I'm blessed, hashtag blessed but so that you might be a blessing to others, is what God promised. I want you to be a conduit through whom I can get my blessing to others. 
That was always God's intent. And we see it play out in Joseph's life, right? And yet for us, as we look at Joseph's story, I'm struck as well by how much it resonates with the story of Jesus in the, in the New Testament, the gospel story of Jesus. I mean, all the way through, I mean, Jesus, Jesus shows up all the way through the Old Testament. Anyone know this? He's often hidden. The way that the, way that the, the Old Testament often describes it is like he's concealed or like, like Moses, you know, like, like we're often with, with veil over our eyes. We don't often see him quite clearly. But then when we get to the New Testament, it's like unveiled faces. We see fully Jesus on display. He's fully revealed. You know what I mean? That's kind of the way it works. But Jesus, think about it like this. Jesus shows up in Joseph's story. Think about this. Joseph was given a vision that people would bow down to him. He would be a place of honor and prestige. Jesus was called to be king and that his kingship would, would allow for many people to find salvation, would invite all people to receive salvation. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver into slavery. Jesus was betrayed and sold for 30 pieces of silver. Now, I'm no ancient, you know, economic guru or anything like that, but if we allow for inflation, maybe 20 becomes 30. You see where I'm going, right? But Joseph, Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, but resisted the temptation. Jesus, right after his baptism, was sent into the wilderness for 40 days where he was tempted by the devil and did not, did not uh, give in, he resisted the temptation, did not sin in the wilderness. Joseph was accused of crimes he did not commit. Jesus, accused of crimes he did not commit. Convicted of crimes he did not commit. Joseph was with two other criminals, one of whom went on to find life, the other who found death. Jesus was hung on a cross next to two criminals, one who went on to be with him in paradise and one who did not. See, I don't know what you're facing at the moment, friends, but that should encourage us and reassure us that God knows. He sees all. He knows exactly the moment, the situation, the circumstances that you are facing. And whether you're living on the mountaintop and this has been a phenomenal week, a phenomenal season, and life is great, or whether actually it's been more of a wilderness, a desert, a pit, a jail cell. God knows. He sees it. And I don't know if you have dreams that you're carrying in your heart that have not been realized yet, but here's what I do know, is that God wants to take those dreams and shape you in such a way that you're used to see others come to life. That wherever you walk and wherever you go, you make those valleys of Bacar a place of springs where water bubbles up for the healing and blessing, not only for yourself, but for others around, right? Where others come to find life. That God wants to work in you, shaping you, molding you, making you more and more like Jesus. Just in the same way he was working in Joseph, God wants to work in you as well. And the invitation is, will you let him, will you cooperate don't harden your hearts when the Word of God comes to you this morning. Let's be open. Let's be those who are receptive. Because I can speak from personal experience. It doesn't go well when you harden your heart. You know, for me, as a young fella, um, I remember stepping out and pursuing a sense of call to ministry and it was a long time of apprenticing or serving under others and serving the vision of other people. And, and that wasn't always easy, but man, it was character for me. 
for years. There were, there were three other pastors, four, four other pastors that I served under in order to, an apprentice under, in learning the way of Jesus, the way of Christ-like leadership. And, and for years, 13 years, actually, I see the parallel in Joseph's life with my own, actually, for 13 years before God invited us to come and plant a church here in Christchurch. But it wasn't like the season was over when, <laughs> when that started. In fact, it was like, no, God had more humility to build inside of me and take me deeper. And so even though I wasn't serving the vision of another leader, another pastor that I was working for or, or with, but it was like, hey, now I get to be the leader of this thing. It's like, oh, but God wasn't done yet. He had to grow more humility in me. And the early years of leading a church plant was not pleasant or easy, as a number of you can attest to, because you were around and you did the journey with us. It wasn't pleasant. It wasn't easy. It was, it, God continued to humble me. And he continues to do that. Because he's wanting to refine and strip out anything, anything that's about me. It's not about me. It's about him. It's about his church growing and thriving and seeing the well be a community of people built up, so well formed in the image and likeness of Christ that when people encounter us, church, they go, man, these people know how to journey through the valleys and the mountaintops. These people know how to bring life and healing wherever they go. These people know where to receive sustenance and strength when life puts the pressure on. We look to the one who is the source of all of that, that God would be glorified in and through our lives and that God would be, you know, make us for his purposes and for his sake, make us more holy, more righteous, more humble, more godly and kind and good and gentle and graceful and compassionate. Have you ever met someone later in life who lives that out? Have you ever met someone who just embodies that picture of Psalm 84, who when they journey through the valleys, it seems like they make him a, 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 I go, oh, may that be true of us. May that be true of me. I want that. At this conference I told you about last week over in Portland, one of the speakers there is a guy named John Ortberg, and he's been significantly influential on my life. I've read a bunch of his books. He's a well-known author and teacher and church leader and for years and years. Um, and he's been through some crazy difficult stuff over the last number of years. And yet he was speaking at the conference, and Jamie and I actually had the chance to meet with him um, on sabbatical. And I got to tell you, it was one of those moments, you know, I, I don't know if you're anything like me, but oftentimes when I've read someone's books and then I get the chance to connect with them at a conference or meet with them in person, one of the big questions I'm always asking is, is the person as good as their book? <laughs> no, like for real. Or, is, or, do, or, or, or actually, is the book elevated? Are they put on a pedestal? Is it hyped? You know what I mean? Is it, is it, is it like actually you're getting a glorified view of the person through their teaching or their preaching or their book and the person themselves is less than. And I just got to tell you, when we met Orberg and when we talked with Orberg, it was the sense of, oh, his books barely scratch the surface of the person he is in Christ. He is a deep, well person. And it inspired me to say, may that be true of me and of my life and of our church, friends. May that be true of us. You know, the sages of the church, those who are so steeped in the presence and power of God in their lives, that his wisdom just ekes out of them wherever they go. You know how we become that? 
We train for it over a long time. Yes, God can show up and bless us in specific moments and do miraculous things on occasion, but those aren't the normal ways that a life like that is formed and cultivated. It's, it's more the way that Eugene Peterson describes of a long obedience in the same direction. That's how we become those kind of people. We train for it. We don't uh, you know, sit around and go, oh, I'm just going to try harder this week. Trying harder, even the language itself, it, you know, encompasses the option of failure, right? Even the language of, oh, I'm going to try, like embeds within it the option for opting out when things get hard. We don't try harder when it comes to the life of Christ being formed in us. We train for it. It's why Paul writes to Timothy, and I was reading just this past week, in, 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 and this was part of my Bible reading on Tuesday morning. This verse just come alive for me like crazy, where Paul in, in, in 1 Timothy is writing and he, and he spells out all the requirements and expectations of, of leaders in the life of the church that they be above reproach is kind of the big umbrella that hangs over it all. And then in chapter 4, verse 7, he, tells, he says this to Timothy directly, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Isn't that nice? We might say gossip and Facebook and social media and rather... Train yourself to be godly, he says. Train yourself to be godly. Train yourself. And as I was reading that this week, I, I just sensed the Spirit of God saying, here's the, here's the implication of that and why this is so important for us to grab hold of this morning, friends. Because when life, when we find ourselves in the valley of Bacar or in the, and when, when the unexpected goes on and life, our plans fall apart all around us, when we find ourselves thrown into the pit, whichever pit it might be, you know, where you are betrayed, where you are falsely accused, where you are misrepresented, whatever it might be, where, where you feel those things. We often think, sitting here this morning, right, we take an optimistic view. Oh, well, we'll rise to that challenge, right? <laughs> we'll rise to meet the moment, don't we? But any long-distance runner will tell you, that's not usually how it goes on race day. You know what actually happens? When those hard things, moment, when those valleys hit us, we don't rise to meet the challenge, we drop to the level of our training. And I was like, man, that, that's what I think God wants for us this morning, for us in this series. When the unexpected happens, when our plans fall apart, may we be those who journey through the Valley of Bacar, making a, a, a place of springs where life and flourishing comes because we've trained for it. We know how to traverse these places and spaces in and with the presence of God because we've trained for it. And so this week, friends, here's, here's the invitation for this week. How'd you go with the morning and evening prayer last week? You know, spend time. Remember that was the homework from last week? That was the invitation. Spent, yeah, I see one person's done it. That's great. Praise the Lord. Um, hey, opportunity, there's fresh grace for this week. Everyone can hop on the train again this week. Let's try again. Let's try again this week. Morning and evening, take five to ten minutes. And here's the prayer that I'd invite you to sit with the Lord and reflect on your spiritual training. If we want to truly become mature in the faith, reflect on how are we actually training. Ask the Lord. Ask the Lord, 
what would you have me? And don't, don't go overdoing it. You know, don't, don't go running off into a marathon training program. You know, if you're still stuck on the couch, do the couch to 5K program. You've seen those, right? You know, that's where you want to start. You know, like start there and ask God, what is the one embodied response? What would be a faithful embodied response to your word this morning that you would have me add in? How do I embody that? How do I practice it? What is the practice you would have me add that I can train myself for godliness? What is God speaking to you? Ask him that in prayer, morning, sit, sit in silence and capture anything he says. And you're like, man, I don't hear the voice of God. I don't know what he says. Any idea that comes to your mind, jot it down. Any thought that just kind of comes you know, across your heart, jot it down. You don't have to analyze it in that moment. Just capture it and then spend time reflecting on and talking with others and discerning it after the fact. Just capture those things in the moment because you never know. It could be God. And when God speaks, I don't know about you, but I never want to miss those. So just capture it, get it written down, hold on to it, and then discern it with others in life group and in conversations and, and in prayer times going on throughout the week. And then in the evening, ask God, how did you meet me as I practice that today? And allow his, him to just encourage you each evening as you go to sleep. Encourage you with moments where his grace was with you and he assured you of his presence that he sees and he knows and he loves you dearly. That's the invitation this week. Spend time morning and evening with the Lord, reflecting on our practices so that we might train ourselves uh, to become more and more like Jesus. Because life is filled with the unexpected. Our plans often fall apart. This doesn't mean that God has left you or abandoned you. In fact, it's often the opposite. It's right. He has you right where he wants you. <laughs> and he wants to do things. He's nearer than you think. He wants to make you more and more like Jesus. Will you attend to that and attune yourself to that?